0: First event for ESA of the 2008
1: 2009 academic year. I'd like to welcome everyone on behalf of ESA, on behalf of myself, and also Charles Small. Um, I'm Lauren Clark, the coordinator for ESA, and um, I am going to uh, apologize for Charles, who cannot be here this evening. Uh, he is actually attending a conference in Washington, D.C., um, on the state sanctioned incitement to genocide. Uh, which Yisa is co-sponsoring with the International Association of Genocide Scholars. So the conference will address Iranian President um, Ahmadinejad's visit to the UN General Assembly in New York yesterday, and also specifically his repeated calls for whitening Israel off the map. So he sends his apologies and hopes to see all of you soon at our other events. So at this time, I'd like to um, welcome Mr. Mark Weitzman. Um, Mark Weitzman is the Director of the Task Force Against Hate and Terrorism at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. He is also the Associate Director of Education there. He is a Chief Representative of the Center of the United United Nations in New York. And he's currently a member of the advisory board of ISCAP, the Institute for Social and Global Antisemitism And policy. Uh, He's a member of the U.S. delegation to the Task Force for International Cooperation on Holocaust Education, Remembrance, and Research. He's a board member and former vice president of the Association of Holocaust Organizations, also on the advisory panel of experts on freedom of religion or belief of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, also known as the OSCE. And he's also a member of the Jewish Catholic Dialogue Group of New York. Um, previously, Mr. Weitzman was the founding director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center's New York Tolerance Center. He is a prominent lecturer, speaker, and panelist for multiple conferences and groups, including Congress, the UN, the Euro- European Union, US Army, and the FBI. In April of 2008, he was one of the Jewish leaders invited to meet with Pope Benedict the 16th, during his visit to the U.S. and was also selected by the Pew Charitable Trust as one of the 25 participants in a conference on international religious freedom. He has an extensive list of publications, uh, including being the co-editor and also contributing to the memorial volume in honor of Simon Wiesenthal entitled, Anti-Semitism, the Generic Hatred, Essays in Memory of Simon Wiesenthal, which was published in 2007 and also received the 2007 National Jewish Book Award for the Best Anthology. uh, A forthcoming publication by Mr. Weitzman will be uh, coming out this fall and published by the Vidal Sassoon Center for the Study of Antisemitism at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And it is a monograph entitled Globalization, Conspiracy Theory, and the the Shoah. So we would now like to uh, invite Mr. Weitzman up, and if you could help me welcome him.
2: Thank you very much for that welcome, and uh, thank you for everyone for coming out tonight. Um, I want to sort of begin against all rules of all speakers, where you're told never to apologize for anything when you start with. I actually do want to apologize a little bit, because I realized as we were getting into it, that the the topic, the theme, uh, the title of the presentation tonight, um, was just extraordinarily broad. And there's no way that I, or I think almost anybody else, could really cover what that implies in that title, and I'm going to kind of narrow it down a little bit. Um, So instead of this whole broad anti-Semitism, there's so many different, I think, varieties of anti-Semitism today that I'm really going to focus on, on one or two specific areas and try to kind of wrap that up and spend a little time with them. So if I had to pick a title, I would actually change it a little bit to something called The Magical Logic. And it's working off a quote by the historian Saul Friedlander, who wrote, the magical logic of the marriage of the opposites, the coincidence of themes from the radical right and radical left that is the most fundamental feature of fascism. And in some ways, the new discourse that I want to Talk about and, and, and explore a little bit. Are that merging of themes, the borrowing from extreme right into left and so on, that go into and often play off of globalization and some of the other uh, issues that are that are uh, coursing through the world today, and sort of look at it in a very specific manner. If we think about it, when I still, when I mentioned before about anti-Semitism being um, you know, so many varieties of anti-Semitism. It used to be, before before the Shabbat, before the Holocaust, we really sort of only talked about three different varieties. There was religious anti-Semitism, the classical anti-Semitism, that had grown up in the religious tradition of, of, of uh, Christianity and so on, and, and I'm not going to get into that, and the, I know my friend Charles here has, has also been interested in that topic for a long time. But, um, but basically, the results of the Holocaust led into... Vatican II, the actions of the mainstream churches, which essentially repudiated all forms of theological anti-Semitism. That's not to say that strains don't exist today. It's not to say that there are not issues today. It's not to say that there are certainly major controversy, and I'll get to some of them right now. But in essence, the theological anti-Semitism that had existed and had in many ways contributed Not the only factor but contributed to the Holocaust, was delegitimized. And of course, the same thing goes with what used to be called racial science. That as well was delegitimized. Eugenics and so on. Except for certain scientists still operating today, but on the core, on the edge of the fringes of mainstream science, that is no longer acceptable either. So what was left was really one form of anti Semitism that still has managed to maintain its viral capability. And that was sort of the conspiratorial, political form of anti-Semitism. And it obviously <coughs> blossomed further into anti-Zionism. And of course, again, there are elements within all the that I mentioned earlier of um, both religions, as well as um, issues about uh, you know, science and health, in which that form of anti-Semitism still exists today But nonetheless, it is really, in its purest form, the strongest, most overt sense of anti-Semitism. In other words, even people and institutions that claim that they're not anti-Semitic often will allow extreme manifestations of anti-Zionism to come out. And obviously, the birth of the State of Israel was a further factor that enabled that to flourish. Um, and so th- basically that kind of anti Semitism has really, um, really jumped out at us. And in recent years, has become even stronger. There was also another factor in that. The anti Semitism of the conspiracy theorists, and the classic text, of course, of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was based on the idea that a small core of Jews, a cabal, if you will, with its connotations of Kabbalah, esoteric mysticism and so on, and secret Jewish plotting, was located in the fringes of society or in the shadows of society, pulling strings and manipulating. Them. But with the creation of the state of Israel, Jews were no longer in the closet, so to speak they had come out as full-fledged actors onto the stage of history of international politics and that meant for the anti-semites it was a step further that was harder for them to take and maybe a classic manifestation of this was the last political will of Adolf Hitler he wrote, centuries will pass away but the hatred against those finally responsible international jury and its helpers will grow I have also made it quite plain that if the nations of Europe are again to be regarded as mere shares to be bought and sold by the international conspirator's money and finance, then that race, Jewry, which is a real criminal the murderous struggle, will be saddled with responsibility. So today, the anti-Semitism, which was always a constant, especially on the radical right, was commanded by one of its iconic figures to avenge itself against the perceived Jewish victory at the end of World War II. And Following immediately on that, three years after that Jewish victory, was the emergence of the Jew into the world stage as a full-fledged actor. And this meant that the imperative to act was perhaps even stronger than it had ever been before. So, So what we have, essentially, is a pattern that the historian Robert Chazen once described as, he wrote that every new stage in the evolution of anti-Jewish thinking is marked by a dialectical interplay between a prior legacy of negative stereotypes and the realities of a new social context. Meaning that the stereotypes always existed in certain levels, but they're brought into new shape and given new form by the context of the times in which they appear. So what I want to do here is explore some of that context a little bit more. Now, and I'm going to do it by basically looking at some of the figures and some of the themes that have come out and have been used recently in the extremist right wing, if you want to call it you neo-Nazi, know, whatever you want to call it, and I'm not going to get into strict definitions of all those terms, but to explore those a little bit and then show how they began to permeate out of their narrow context into a wider context and some of the influences that they may have. So for example, in the United States right now. They were going through a period of flux in the extreme right wing. Former charismatic and, and leadership figures like William Pierce of the National Alliance, Richard Butler of the Aryan Nations, Matt Hale of the World Church and the Creator, have all left the scene. Pierce and Butler died. Hale was in prison. Each of those three, and I think those three specifically, were noteworthy. One is because they had reach a certain level of notoriety or prominence in the movement. Two is because they were each trained beyond what we sometimes think and, and look as a stereotype of an extreme right winger. And sometimes many people still have the, the idea that these are people who you know, are obviously failures in, in, in the world and are embittered because they're, they're reduced to pumping gas and can't compete in, in the world today. Um, or they're on unemployment or whatever. We looked at them as total failures. But each of those three that I mentioned were not failures in the classic sense. Pierce had a PhD in physics from Rice and taught at Oregon State before he devoted his time starting in the mid-1960s to being a full-time neo-Nazi. Butler was an aeronautical engineer for Lockheed and held certain patents, including one for the tires, I think, that are still used on airplanes. And Hale, who was much younger, in his 30s, and finally sentenced to life imprisonment for trying to kill a, a federal judge, was a law school graduate, and a classical musician who played in an orchestra in, uh, he lived in Peoria, but in that area. So each of those three had the ability to succeed, and turned that ability not to conventional success, but to organizing and to their work in the neo-Nazi movement. Um, but they're all gone now. They're off the scene. What's left are really second-raiders, and that's being kind. Um, but each of them has made their mark. The person who fills that gap the most today is a person that you've probably heard of named David Duke.
3: Um,
2: not going into Duke's whole background and his whole history, but uh, Duke is now has a group called Euro, which is the uh, European-American Unity and Rights Organization, and has recently tried to reinvent himself as a thinker, as a leader. He received a PhD from a Ukrainian university, a private university, a few years ago for a dissertation that was an anti-Semitic tract. This university has been denounced by the Ukrainian president, the Ukrainian Academy of Arts and Sciences, um, but is essentially specialized in anti-Semitism. It's a management school, and uh, Duke's now a part-time faculty member there. But um, after he got out of prison, another story, he was in there for basically defrauding his, his followers and so on, and tax issues. In 2004, he called together members of this movement to New Orleans, and he created something called the New Orleans Protocol, which basically was a document meant to end infighting among the, uh, the groups, the figures in, the, in this movement, and to establish sort of, a, sort of ground rules to get along with. And of course, by calling them together, bringing them together, and being the first one to sign the document, he was not only reasserting his presence in the movement, but his prime role, his leadership role, in a sense, of bringing the person to get everybody together. Um, but during that meeting, Duke, of course, singled out Jews as signs of the world problems. And what he said, and specifically about Jews, was he like uh, worldwide Jewish conspiracy to destroy the white race through immigration and a nation race mixing. The fear of race mixing is one of the prime fears that motivate these people. What's interesting about it is that it's not just considered on racial terms, but it's considered part and parcel of the Jewish plot. Um, if you have time, I was going to show you some internet uh, websites, but I'm just going to describe a game that's present on the internet now called Border Patrol. This is a game that, very simple. It shows immigrants crossing a river. And obviously, they are Hispanic, Latino immigrants. The river cactus. Obviously, we're meant to write, um, refer to the Rio Grande in Texas. And the idea is that these are illegal immigrants crossing the border from Mexico into the United States. The object of the game is quite simple you shoot as many as you can. The more you shoot, kill, the higher your score. And in the corner is a small American flag. But in the corner of the American flag, where the stars are, instead of the stars that you usually see in the American flag, is one star the Star David. Meant to show, and this game operates on many levels, meant to show that while the US is being weakened by these illegal immigrants, the person or the group letting them in, causing the United States to let them in, pulling the strings once again in control of the US government, are the Jews. And the acronym very often used by these people is ZA, Zionist Occupied Government, referring to the United States government. Or the variant, Job, Jewish Occupied Government. Uh, which is one of the ways that, by the way, that they can also claim that US laws don't apply to them and US government rules don't apply to them because the government's been occupied, taken over. It's not a true American government anymore. So this whole thing operates in different levels. Now that game is sinister enough on a certain level Um, What we've observed, what I observed last last winter, was that the game had been around for a couple of years, about three, four years. um, And then I noticed last year on the internet, I found mention of it, not no longer on the extremist websites, but I found mention of it in mainstream gaming sites, where there were discussions of it and its qualities and so on. Not its theme, but just its qualities. And I saw this kind of leeching of the extremist fringe in certain cases, into the mainstream, which is exactly what, what they desire and what they want. Um, the whole internet thing is worth a whole nother presentation. I don't know if we'll have time for it. If we do, I can show you a lot on it, but uh, we'll see if we can get to it today. Um, Duke refers to his own awakening to the Jewish issue, he calls it Jewish supremacism, um, and of the root of all major issues, including 9-11, of course, was caused by Israelis. Um, I don't have to go into all of it, but just some some samples and quotes about it. Um, And one of the things that was also the root of all this is globalization. And what we find is globalization, and this is where we start getting into it, a theme that is very often associated with the left, anti-globalization, is actually a theme that is rammed onto by the extreme right. So Duke writes, for the last few decades of my life, I've earnestly tried to inform people that those who are the true forces behind globalism are in actuality racial supremacists. But no, they are not the so-called racial supremacists the media talks about. They are not European, African, or Asian supremacists. They are Jewish supremacists. And then it occurs, of course, to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. We're going to come back to the whole thing about um, globalization, and actually, you know what, we'll do it here just in terms of time. When you think about it, logic about it, there is a certain logic. How the extreme right is so anti-globalization. First of all, in many cases, the themes of, of classical National Socialism were the farmer, the earth, German, Nazi Germany, the land. Nothing with big business. Furthermore, the separation of borders, culture, folk, and so on. Anything that smacked breaking down these kind of, of, of barriers would be an ethema. And then there's also another shorthand as well. And I'm sort of pushing a lot together here, um, compressing a lot there. And the shorthand is very simple. Who controls, who's favorite globalization? Big business. Multinational corporations. Who controls multi- multinational corporations? Wall Street. And if I was doing a diagram, I would just put equals, equals, equals in between, because the next step is Wall Street equals Jews. So globalization very quickly, in a very brief shorthand, becomes another synonym for Jewish control and domination, via the protocols, or an updated version. And Pierce once wrote something called the New Protocols, dealing with these issues. So this explains very simply how they can be in that boat. But it's not only globalization. It's also things as odd as ecology. There's a green-brown movement, in a way. And here again, Duke is our guide into it. He wrote, I do though have an abiding love for our white race and the civilization and the root values that it created. I want my children and all my descendants to live in a free and healthy society, not a third world hovel. I want to preserve the unique character and beauty of my people the same way that as an ecology-minded individual, I desire the preservation of the blue whale or the great African elephant. So out of the kindness of his heart and his feelings toward nature, he wants to support the white race and keep it great by keeping it pure from any contact or mixture with lower races. And again, there was evidence of this going back to Nazi Germany, um, without going into tracing all the history behind it. And Duke is not the only one who has written about these things. Even though uh, I've used to sort of sketch out the parameters, they, this is not new. Uh, Pierce, already back in 1976, wrote, there are in fact several issues on which we are closer what would ordinarily be considered the left wing or liberal position than we are to the conservative or right wing position, which flies against every common belief that we would have about neo Nazis. We would almost automatically assume, if we had a lump of them in this political spectrum, that they're closer to a conservative position. And yet, Pierce himself, 30 years ago, over 30 years ago, was writing that this isn't true. One of these issues is the ecology issue, the protection of our natural environment, the elimination of pollution, and the protection of wildlife. And there are also other issues in which are closer to the liberals than to the conservatives, although I doubt that we completely agree with them on every issue, just as we seldom, if ever, completely agree with the right wing on any issue. And and Pierce also, of course, was anti-globalization. Every few months for the past year, I've used this program to warn against the policy of economic globalization. He said that in uh, 1998. He's not the only one. That's been a glimpse at the United States and those are probably the two of the most prominent figures in the movement in the United States. But there's another figure, there are other figures around the world, and just to give you some of them in the sense and get a sense of, of the globalization of this issue. Horst Mahler is a prominent German extremist. Mahler has had a fascinating career because he embodied some of this in his own life. He began as a lawyer defending Andreas Bader or the Bader Meinhof Gang, which was the extreme left terrorist gang in West Germany in the 1970s, and Mahler befriended him, defended him, was his lawyer, um, and then was actually jailed for participating in a violent shootout that, in a rescue attempt, on uh, to free Bader. While he was in prison, at a certain point, he had an epiphany. And he went from the extreme left to the extreme right. And again, by the way, there are roots of this. If you, I mean, again, I don't know how many you know, people go back and study uh, National Socialism and all that, but if you remember the conflict between Hitler and the Strasser brothers, it was based on part of this, The, in, in a blunt way, the emphasis of whether the Socialism part should be emphasized or the National part should be emphasized. So there are parallels to this in the past. Anyway, Mahler joined the NPD, became, which is the German, neo-Nazi political party, so to speak, became one of its leading ideologues and subsequently left them to form what's something called Deutsches College or or Deutsche Academy, which is sort of a think tank on on the extreme right, but has also been prominent in this whole vein. Um, Writing after 9-11, 10 days after 9-11, he wrote that globalism, already powerfully downed by the runaway world economic crisis, will sink down upon itself like the towers of Manhattan under a thousand dagger strikes from Islamic fundamentalism. Now, and he keeps writing in uh, March 2001, he writes that uh, links Jews to globalization. We have to find this prospect unpleasant, especially since the power hides behind the smokescreen of fine sounding words like enlightenment, tolerance, emancipation, modernism, human rights, free trade, and globalism. And in the present world situation, globalism needs to be linked to the objective existence uh, the objective existence of the Jewish question. And he further went on by saying it in, on the, in an interview posted on the internet that what is generally meant by democracy is actually Jewish rule, which Jewish plutocrats exercise through their control of global finance, monetary system, and the media. I do know that the nations are going to liberate themselves from the Jewish yoke. And Mahler has continued in that vein. He's been writing further about these things. But what is interesting about Mahler is that he has also begun to reach out to radical Islam. And we're going to see that trend as well developing in terms of how the, the extremes of circles come together. Mahler mentioned earlier in one of the quotes that I read earlier about, he spoke positively about the role of Islamic fundamentalism in bringing down globalization. And as a matter of fact, uh, beyond that, just recently, uh, this past spring, the NPD in Germany following up on Mahler's words. Um, And again, they've gone without going through all the permutations of what role Mahler is playing now exactly and so on. Um, But the Deutsche Academy came out with, uh, called its comrades to participate in anti-Israel demonstrations of the peace movement, left-wing anti-imperialism, Arab associations, and Turkish extremist groups. They recommended that they put down their opposition to the Antifa, which are the European anti-fascist left and extreme left groups, as well as the multi-cult, which is their term for multiculturalists. In other words, they're saying, put aside all your enmity to those who are normally your enemies. Put it aside for the common good. And what's the common good? Against Israel, against Jews, against the U.S. Um, and give priority to a common anti-imperialist concern for Islamism was not our enemy, in their own words. So it was recommended that they renounce the provocations typical of their obscene which includes swastikas and waving the black, white, red flag and so on and so forth. In other words, sublimate everything that you've always done and stood for to fit in to the scene all the better. So you can participate, swell the numbers for a common goal. And the classic explanation of that, of course, is the enemy of my enemy and so on. This is nothing, no I should say nothing new, but it's been going on for a while. Um, Duke, who I mentioned obviously earlier, had gone around to quite a number of the Gulf states, Syria, been interviewed there, been on the media there, as a matter of fact he claims to have given Ahmadinejad the idea for the Holocaust denial conference that he held in Tehran in 2006, Um, according to Duke he whispered this in Ahmadinejad's ear when they had a meeting um, and Ahmadinejad took it from there. Um, I haven't seen Ahmadinejad's response to that, but uh, it just gives you a sense of what's going on. There's a whole group of right-wing extremists internationally who have made links with Islamic radicals and extremists. Um, A man named Ahmed Huber, who is a Swiss financier, and again I'm not going into too much detail on him, his connection, he he actually converted to Islam. His connections are so deep that in uh, 2002 he was put on the watch list. The watch list is the US immigration list of people who are not allowed to enter the country. For example, Kurt Voltheim, after his Nazi past was exposed, was put on the watch list. Um, On one of the lists put out in the wake of 2001, Uber, because he was a financier involved with financing some groups that were linked to terrorism, was actually, I think, number 56 on a list of uh, 62. in uh, in November 2001 he was put on that list and barred from entering the United States he gave interviews as far back as 1965 where he talked about his admiration for Hitler and he kept a bust of Hitler on his desk when he was interviewed and yet converted to Islam has worked with Islamist groups has found refuge in Iran at times and his links are very strong on both sides um, of of, that that coin in Oh, before I forget, in Germany, 2006, the, jur- the paper, the journal of the NPD, Deutsches Stimme, gave an interview with the head of the, uh gave an explanation of Islam that meant to whitewash Islamic radicalism and present it to its readers in a better light. So we're seeing different ways that it's playing out, not just in terms of the elites, such as Uber or. Um, or people like that, but even going to the mass, to the appeals to the people on the streets and to the readership of the journal. David Mayatt is another figure from the UK. Mayatt was a longtime neo-Nazi, very prominent, who was involved, as a matter of fact, was uh, Combat 18, which was the group that the, uh, there was a bomber named David Copeland who blew up a gay bar and a couple of other places in uh, London a number of years ago serving a life sentence. Myatt was the theoretician of Combat 18. 18 is one of the neo-Nazi acronyms of numbers, standing for the first letter of the alphabet and the eighth letter of the alphabet. In other words, it's a neo-Nazi version of what in Hebrew we call dematria, the gematria, numerology in a sense. And the A, the first letter stands for Adolf, and the eighth letter is Age, Hitler. So combat 18 is an action arm of neo-Nazis. Maya converted to Islam a few years ago in the same mosque, Brixton Mosque, that Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, and others participated in, whose, whose Imam was deported from the UK a number of years ago. And Maya has made it a point of writing over recent years, not only has he visited and spent time in the Middle East, but he's made a point of literally writing about how he wants to bring neo-Nazis and Islamic extremists together. And if you go, for example, to the website of the Aryan Nations or groups like that, which are sort of falling apart and stuff, but you'll see evidence of this because Mayat's writings are in there. For a while the Aryan nations in one of their splinter after uh, existences, after Butler's death, had a minister of, I forget what they called it, of, uh, to the Muslim world, to the Aryan, which meant nothing. Practically, <coughs> It just showed what they were going, you know, the direction they were trying to link up in. Now, when a Mayat was really a neo-Nazi, I mean, was, was really a uh, sincere convert to Islam or so on, I'm not sure of the answer to that. He's also, after Islam, he sort of veered into this kind of a paganism, and neo-pagan outlook. Um, these are not necessarily the most stable people in the world. And the truth is, the links, in some ways, are not that strong between neo-Nazis and Islamic extremists. Because the bottom line is, for a jihadist, these are still white Europeans. Christian, pagan, but certainly not Muslim. So there's a certain level of suspicion and distance that they haven't bridged yet, except for one area. And that's the area of Holocaust denial. There you actually have convergences. Part of it may be because that's the more um, intellectual arm of both, both groups at a certain level. Um, a number of figures from the Muslim world or from the Arab world who are into Holocaust denial are more secular or even Christian Arabs. So there is room to build bridges there. But bridges have been built for a long time. Um, Very quickly, to go into it, I have a whole list of of contexts that I go into, especially between Iran um, and so on. I'll get to some of those immediately. But it's one of the first tangible evidences of this was not the conference that was held in Tehran in 2006. But there's actually an attempt, going back to 2001, spring of 2001, by a man named Jurgen Graf, who fled Switzerland because he was about to be jailed for hate, uh, violating hate crimes laws, fled to Iran. Got Iranian money to fund the conference in Beirut that was being co-sponsored by the Institute for Historical Review, which is the US Center of Holocaust Denial, based out in California. And this conference was meant to bring together leading figures, Pierce, Mahler. They were all committed to coming from the US along with leading figures from the Muslim world. It collapsed under a barrage of criticism to the point where, um, controversially, because we we're never 100% sure, Edward Said came out against it, but then he later seemed to backtrack that he came out against it. It was sort of never 100% clear. Um, but he certainly did not endorse it wholeheartedly. Um, and eventually, this, as I said, it collapsed. Um, and a follow-up was eventually held in Jordan about a year later, just on much more minor key. Mahler and, and Pierce did not make it. Some of their speeches were read. The Arab figures were not as prominent, um, but it still it showed something. The IHR Institute of Historical Review, in its own conferences, starting about 2001, 2002, and they have been haven't had many conferences recently. Uh, had people presenting on topics related to the Middle East from the Palestinian, Arab, Muslim perspective. David Irving, perhaps the world's most notorious Holocaust denier, has also linked up and had people connections with people in these circles. And if we get to Iran, uh, going back to 1987, 20 years ago, there was a uh, series of of Nazi and Holocaust denial books put out in France. the French police actually wanted to question and suspected um, an official at the Iranian embassy who wrote a check underwriting these publications. Iranian President Rafsanjani in 1998 said that the murder of the Jews by the Nazis was only a propaganda act by the Zionists. In other words, before Ahmadinejad, a decade before Ahmadinejad roughly, Iranian president was already denying the Holocaust. Um, his successor, Ali Khomeini, 2001, Zionist exaggerated statistics, and so on. 1990, a Moroccan named Ahmed Rami, who again, fled Morocco because he tried to join a revolt against the king there, fled to Sweden, served time in prison, providing many like hate crime crimes in Sweden, runs a virulent radio station website called Radio Islam, which very Straightforward, it has nothing to do with normative Islam. It exists only for one purpose, and it's anti-Semitism, and Holocaust denial. Um, but Rami visited Iran upon his release, and was honored by a special session of the Iranian uh, parliament. A Frenchman, Raja Gharadi, who converted to Islam. His case, convicted in France, again, of violating Holocaust denial uh, hate crime speech, his case was taken at the highest levels of the Iranian government, and they actually paid for some of the fine that, uh, and that was given him. And they actually protested to the French embassy. graph um, I mentioned, an Austrian, an Australian, all found their way to Iran over the past five, six years. And a number of these spoke at the denial conference in 2006. The recent conference in Tehran in 2006 brought together a number of familiar names. David Duke was there. The Frenchman Robert Fursan has written that the Diary of Anne Frank was a hoax. Um, Frederick Tobin, Australia's most prominent Holocaust denier from the Adelaide Institute. Uh, Bradley Smith, who was the person in the United States who, a number of years ago, tried to put those ads in campus newspapers claiming that the Holocaust never happened. Um, Michael Piper, who is a uh, longtime employee of the man named Willis Cardo. Um, Cardo Funds, where actually was a founder of the Institute for Historical Review funded the Liberty Lobby, Spotlight Magazine, is um, one of the leading underwriters of extremist right stuff in the United States for the past 40 years or so. Um, he was there representing Cardo, uh, Jurgen Graf, the Swede who I mentioned the, the, was uh, the Swiss man who was given the money to organize the Beirut Conference. They all came down to Tehran. They were all welcomed with open arms. So this is nothing new this linkage and this mixture. Um, The interesting thing, by the way, I'll point out, while we're talking about Tehran is, is I don't know if any of you saw the pictures and looked at that conference, but the anomaly there, of course, was the presence of the Neturei Karta, the extreme orthodox, sort of ultra-Hasidic group that showed up there. Um, It's interesting for a number of levels. First of all, it's not their first contact with Iran. They've been working with them over the years. They had a visit in 2000 as well. They're actually approved visitors and the link of the tiny Iranian Jewish community, which still exists, to the outside world in a sense. And they're an approved link because obviously they're anti-Zionist and obviously they're willing to sit down with anybody, um, including neo-Nazis and so on. But I took a look at what they actually said there. And it was actually very interesting. Because what they actually said there was not Holocaust denial. They were the only people who stood up. And they literally said, one of their spokespeople, one of the rabbis stood up there and said, anyone who denied the Holocaust is an idiot. My grandparents died there. They blamed the Zionists for using it as a political tool. They gave a blessing to Ahmadinejad. But they actually stood up and claimed that the Holocaust was real. So it's a very bizarre case, and that's worth a whole other long conversation about. Um, in their own lives, they're not only trying to rescue Jews in a theological sense, but actually to rescue the world and keep the world running on the axis that they believe God put it on, that Zionism has ruptured. But again, that's a whole another conversation. So why are the, the Iranians, for example, I was wondering why they were so involved in Holocaust denial? What is worth it? Why does the president of Iran, dealing with an issue that, in a certain sense, is so there's no no gain in it necessarily? And uh, you know, what what, what, is, what is the whole point of this? And there are a couple things. One is that the Iranians are watching something that's happening in the Western world. And that is, there's a growing trend toward the institutionalization of the Holocaust. Meaning that if you look, for example, at the United Nations, in light of Durban, and we can discuss all the political reasons and whether the motives are pure or impure or whatever, but the United Nations has started from certain steps. Over the past couple of years, there's been a resolution at the General Assembly. That was passed that declared January 27th an official day of commemoration for victims of the Holocaust which meant that the United Nations was acknowledging and all member states were acknowledging not only that the Holocaust happened but the wording of the resolution went right back to the origins of the United Nations being rooted in revulsion, the world's revulsion of the events of the Holocaust. They also passed a motion the next year, a resolution decrying Holocaust denial, which although it did not mention Iran or Ahmadinejad, was obviously aimed directly at the Iranians. But it's not only the paper. They created, for example, an office of Holocaust outreach, which has been producing conferences and material and distributing material to the UN information offices around the world. And in other words, it's active. Furthermore, The groups that were mentioned earlier that I have that I do some work with, International Task Force on Holocaust Education, Research and Remembrance, 25 countries that came out of a Swedish, U.S., a couple other countries initiative in around 2000, that now basically underwrite and support and require Holocaust education in all the member states. But putting in a nutshell on that, that's very vague. What that means is that the countries that began it, were Western countries, such as uh, UK, Israel, the United States, etc., five countries, Germany. And they basically came together and looked at the countries emerging from the Iron Curtain, the countries where the Holocaust took place, Poland, Croatia, Slovakia, etc., and said that those countries have not been exposed to history, have not been exposed to the last 50 years of education about the Holocaust, and they will need help. And this was meant to give them a hand. But it requires a formal commitment. The request to join comes from, has to be signed by basically either the minister, foreign minister or an equivalent member of government, meaning it's a formal governmental request. To join it, the country that's seeking to join has to commit to three things, or so four things. First is a national day of commemoration for the victims of the Holocaust in its own country. Meaning in other words, they institutionalize Holocaust remembrance in, that own co- in their country. It does not have to be the 27th of January. It could be a local date that's more appropriate. They commit to free and open access to World War II era archives, which is a little problematic because some members have not really opened up all their archives yet. But nonetheless, it is now something that you can go back to them and say, you're required to do this. And they commit to supporting Holocaust education education about the Holocaust in their country. Which means revising, rewriting, or writing textbooks. Means going back to sites of camps and so on, and creating memorials and exhibitions and texts. It means pedagogical training. Having people from the US, Yad Vashem, and Israel, or so on, go into the country and work with teachers there, or bring them over here, or to Israel, or to Germany, or the Anne Frank House and so on, and work with them. And there's a commitment, each member has to pay 30,000 euro, which is nothing. And that is put into a fund that then underwrites and gives grants to programs in that country. So that's one level. The OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which again grew out of the Helsinki process in the 1970s, dealing with both security and human rights issues. In the wake of Durban, took up through a series of high-level conferences in Berlin and Vienna and Cordoba, and created, became a mechanism for fighting anti-Semitism. There are 55, 56 countries in the OSCE, 25 or so, in the uh, ITF task force, and another five waiting to join the task force. Um, these countries in the OSCE, not only have they produced a declaration about anti-Semitism and so on, but they are now teaching materials about anti-Semitism, about Holocaust, that have been developed specifically for their use, that are distributed basically in all OSCE member states from the UK to Kazakhstan and so on. Now it doesn't mean they're being used all the time, but it means that they're available and they've been quote unquote sanctioned and done under the authority of the OSCE. And so it's an opportunity to get in on the grassroots and to do things in places that no one ever would have imagined 15 years ago that any of these things happen. So the Iranians, in a sense, have looked around at all this. And I'm not sure if they know 100% about the OSCE, because they're not a part of that. But they certainly know about the UN stuff. And I think they've realized that the Holocaust has become, in a way, a form of institutionalized memory. And people sign on, countries sign on. And this is a threat to Iran. By delegitimizing the Holocaust, the Iranians, in essence, among other things, also can delegitimize the roots of the UN. If the UN was founded in terms of revulsion for the Holocaust, then taking away that takes away the need or the power of some of the moral prestige of the UN, which makes its efforts against Iran even weaker or less legitimate. And it actually even goes further than that. It also delegitimizes a lot of human rights law and activities, and war crimes tribunals, and all those other elements that are inconvenient and nasty little reminders for an Iranian government, or at least individuals in the Iranian government, that might feel threatened by those. So I think that there is a political reason, policy reason, why they are spending so much time on the Holocaust. I think it also may have some unintended events, though or some unintended uh, repercussions as well. For one thing, there is no native school of Holocaust denial in the Muslim world. The same way that a lot of the tropes of anti-Semitism, of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, blood libel, things like that, ritual murder, penetrated from the West into the Islamic world. Same thing with Holocaust denial. But in doing so, It requires the the tools of West thought, historiography, engineering, chemical analysis. All these are the tools that are abused by the Holocaust deniers, but they're tools that are in essence denigrated, usually, by the Iranians. This is one of the few times where they open up their society and allow these tools to be brought in. And we've actually seen, in certain cases, a response from some Iranians um, there was a letter in the New York Review of Books signed by hundred Iranians in exile and in Iran at the time of the conference, repudiating the conference. There was a comment by the former foreign minister of Iran in the parliament saying, a uh, speaker in the parliament said, we ever asked that questioning the Holocaust has harmed us and what we get out of it. So it's entirely possible that the results on the grassroots level, may be far different than what Ahmadinejad wanted. I don't have an answer to that. That's pure speculation. But it's an interesting train of thought to follow. So I'm really, I'm, I'm going to close now. I mean, we could continue a lot more on some of this stuff. I don't see if there's anything else. Yeah, the only other thing, these things are still going on right now. Just about a month ago, August 18th, the head of the Institute for Historical Review, the Center for Holocaust Denial in the US, appeared in Baltimore at a conference sponsored by Muslim extremists, local Muslim extremists and there he spoke not about Holocaust denial if you look at, I mean and again, just I've gone through your website over the years and the percentage of Holocaust denial is a group that initially defined themselves just in terms of Holocaust denial now you look at the news stories on there today I did it again the 25 lead stories, news stories only two dealt with World War II neither of them dealt with Holocaust denial, one was a YouTube Link to Lenny Riefenstahl's film of the 36 Olympics. Um, And the other was a story out of Rome, the mayor of Rome kind of defended the fascist legacy. That was it. Everything else was current events, globalization, war, etc. Um, They've had to broaden their appeal. The niche that they had occupied on the fringes of society was not getting them anyplace. But they had the models based on the earlier efforts from the Nazis and so on, to be able to find terms of discourse, anti-globalization, anti-Zionism, ecology, that they could link up or penetrate into circles far beyond their initial limited appeal. And that's one of the things that they've been doing and they've been reaching out to, and with some success. Not a great deal, but some success. I can give you again more concrete examples. Um, a professor at a university in Oregon has, who was very a pacifist in World War II, retired, founded a Pacifica Forum. Um, again, very, you know, uh, much on a somewhat liberal or left perspective, has been bringing Holocaust deniers, has been bringing neo Nazis, and have been linking them to these themes as well. So we're seeing it going on, that this is the ongoing effort for these people, what they're trying to accomplish, whether they'll succeed or not. I don't know if their influence will ever become so dramatically direct, but tangentially, they can certainly have an impact, they can certainly shape discussion, shape thought, and essentially, it goes back to what I said earlier at the very beginning, that if we look at anti-Judaism, the history of anti-Judaism, it's this um, dialectical interplay between the stereotypes and the ideas in the past and the context in which we live in today. The context today is what we have to face. We need to understand it, we need to see the linkages between the past, otherwise we'll end up fighting basically a 21st century battle with 20th century weapons and that's never a good recipe for success. So I hope that I've been able to give you a little bit of a window. Um, it's a much more narrowly defined frame than that grandiose title that you know you came here perhaps thinking that you were going to get. Um, but it is one that I think is important. I think it is sometimes neglected. And as I said, I hope that's given you a little bit better perspective and understanding. Thank you. And the proverbial question okay. and answer time. That's being moderated. Yeah. Um,
0: I've got a question. Um, okay. the next Do you uh, want to say uh, anything first? I'll set up here. One of them. Yeah. OK. Please, come <laughs> on. OK. <myself>. Um, <laughs> I have a kind of similar experience uh, coming <coughs> from Europe. That means there is a kind of decline in um, Holocaust denial as known. On the other side, there is a huge amount of new literature and new propaganda material, both from Muslim side and right-wing extremists, but also liberals, and wing extremists. Uh, according to anti-Sionism, also ecology, of course, but also something like, for example, this new Holocaust museum in Gaza, you know, established by Hamas, that means. Now, um, radicals um, of all time, but especially Palestinians, for example, they are playing the card of Holocaust. It means they are talking about Holocaust. Not of course uh, Holocaust didn't happen. I think to us also Holocaust happens. Or well, you know, uh, in, uh, we have this data, this organization for the treatment of animals. They are playing the same card for several years now. Uh, Holocaust on your on your uh, table. That means. Uh, Killing animals uh, because we need something to eat uh, is the same as killing Jews in the Holocaust. So, this is also not a very offensive uh, kind of Holocaust denial as we but it's a new form. And I think maybe this was the point uh, you wanted to show us. And uh, I think it's really, for the next couple of years of the case, a very important thing uh, what I was calling a universalization or trivialization of the Holocaust uh, by playing the card of the Holocaust.
2: I think you're right. I mean, and I think you as many examples as we could, we just sat here, it was example. the ones you mentioned are absolutely true. There is no question about, um, I think, certain elements of the Palestinian movement have attempted to take the term Holocaust and the description, and they've done. they basically called for um, similar things. In other words, just their claim is, is, what applied to the Jews after the Holocaust, in terms of assistance to DPs and so on, and resettlement agreement, all that should apply to their community. Um, they've called, I think it was Mahmoud Darwash, the, the uh, poet who recently died, I think in the 1990s or whatever, wrote an appeal that was based on um, a similar idea. Um, and I don't remember the exact language, but it was almost sounded as if you would take a, I don't know, you know, a UJA kind of appeal and just transpose the names and stuff, and it was it, it had similar images in a similar language. Pizza was also, they had a very controversial ad a number of years ago, where they basically paralleled the famous picture of survivors, of, of, of prisoners, inmates in a camp, with I think I it was chickens in a coop, um, and it turned out that when they were criticized, um, because we criticized them among other groups, they threatened lawsuits, um, and well, it turned out that they dropped everything because they had really gotten their photos kind of. Without permission, they were using the photos from the US Holocaust Memorial Museum. So uh, that, that whole thing ended up fizzling away. But again, it was this sense of using the Holocaust as a term of frame of reference that everybody can understand and channeling your cause into it or, or, or using it for your own cause. Um, and that leads into the effect of trivialization. Um, there are forms of trivialization as well, and sometimes mm-hmm. I think, you know. Those of us in the Jewish community can sometimes go in that sense also, calling every disaster or every misstep or something a Holocaust um, is not quite the same. Um, I actually rejected the comparisons between that were going strong a few years ago between um, the events of the 1930s and the events of you know, 2003 and so on. Um, to me that just did not did not stand up historically that comparison. Uh, a more appropriate comparison were the nineteen seventies. Where you had again, similar to the range of, of, of the reign of, of of terrorism, you had bombs in Europe, you had hijackings of planes, you had the UN resolution of Zion equating Zionism and, and racism, and all that occurred in 1972, the Munich Olympics to 1975 and 1976. So it was roughly the same time span and roughly the same kind of things. it it was not analogous to me to take it back to 1937 or 35 or you know or whatever. Um, And I will say, by the way, I drew some some strength from that because following in the 1970s, there was a period of roughly 25 years that were relatively quiet and good in terms of Jewish life and anti-Semitism compared to the time before and the time after. So, I looked at it and it said, we did survive that period in the 1970s. You know, Kippur War and, and all that stuff. And we came out of it for almost a generation of relative peace. So that gives hope to me that we'll get through this period as well and come out of it. But it's going to—it's a, it's a hard work, it's a hard
4: job not to minimize it. Um, I may be jumping the gun here in, in the time frame, but uh, it would seem to me that conspiracy theorists uh, would have a field day with the current financial problems. Uh, the Bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, subprime mortgages. Have you seen any sign yet that's going to blame this all to you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's, it's
2: I mean, first of all, it's sort of, already, by the way, I mean, I guess I could go into the whole um, the question of neocons and, you know, being all Jewish and so on and so forth. Um, in other words, any, any current public event that does not work at, well, I guess the best of, it, of all possible hopes, can then ultimately be blamed on the Jews, especially when it comes to finance, especially when it comes to money. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing parts of it starting already on some of the internet sites and some of the, you know, the conversations going on, it'll be, they'll be, it'll be institutionalized. In other words, it'll be written up, it'll be formalized, and there's no question that you'll be able to take your choice between right, extreme right, extreme left, you know, whatever whatever extremes you want will go in that direction. Um, that's the one prophecy that I'll make here with absolute certainty. <laughs> a question do, you,
0: do you think the bailout will be looked at as a uh, from that same perspective that the government is now helping the Jews, you know, the capitalists? Yeah.
2: I think it will, because I think that the bottom line for a lot of these people are that um, they believe that the entire financial system was set up to benefit a small number of people. Um, and while not necessarily every one of those people being, were Jewish, but the majority were, or the ones that aren't, were fronts for Jews. Um, so the bailout is going to definitely be seen as signs that the government is taking care of those who are behind it. And especially in terms of, I'm sure it's going to come out about salaries of Wall Street executives, you know, so on and so forth. Um, it's, 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 it's classic. I mean, it's just made to fill in the blanks, um, but there's absolutely no question in my mind that this whole thing is going to be turned around in that vein. Um, And I would suspect that if I left here and went onto my computer, I could already find articles and so on in that vein. There's no question about that.
3: You talked about how the right wing is reaching out by making arguments that are traditionally considered leftist arguments, like the anti-globalization argument. What's the reception on the left to these efforts?
2: It's actually, in some ways, scary. Because in some ways, it's been accepted. Um, you go to places, some of the world's social forums, for example, where there are signs of this kind of thing having come into it, where you'll have people making comments that you know that, that Hitler was not that bad when it came to this, this topic. Um, there are a number of, of uh, pieces that have explored this perspective. And, and, and basically, well, let me put it this way. You, you just find some bizarre people in there. I just got word of a uh, conference. Oh, yeah, uh, I'm sorry. The one in Baltimore that I just mentioned that had the Institute for Historical Review's director, a long-time neo-Nazi named Mark Weber, sponsored by Muslim extremists. You know what one of the other speakers was? Ramsey Clark, the former attorney general very much on the left, who has also been appearing on this circuit over the past few years. And I tell you, I grew up admiring Ramsey Clark in many ways um, when I was younger for his work as Attorney General and, and so on. Um, and yet he's been on the circuit and here's a perfect example. He had the opportunity not to appear with these people. But he went ahead and did. it. Uh, Kirkpatrick Sale, another figure on the left, has been involved with the group in Vermont that had been linked until recently with uh, the white citizens councils uh, in the South, which are basically a group of kind of neo-confederate racists. Um, and and Sale has been involved with the Institute. I forget exactly which organizations involved with, with this guy named Thomas Naylor. And up until about a month ago, they refused any criticism. Naylor has finally come out and called and said that the, the uh, citizens councils have to drop the racist stuff and so on and so forth. But they had no problem until they were publicly exposed. Until someone called them on it, and this had nothing to do directly with anti-Semitism. They had no problem linking up with it, Um, and this is, I think, is problematic. Whether it's delusional, whether it's the enemy of my enemy, I'm not quite sure. You know the psychology of it, but there are enough manifestations, enough people that um, falling into that, that it bears notice.
4: I had a question actually. Go to, you can you speak more about the link between contemporary anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial? I mean I don't know if that's a clear enough question. But no, it's
2: very clear. I I, would, I think it's actually I, I may run the risk of simplifying here, but I'll go ahead and run the risk. Um, I don't think there's any basis for Holocaust denial other than anti-Semitism. I think they're absolutely wrapped up together. Um, the people who are involved in Holocaust denial, the professionals, spend a lot of time studying the Holocaust. My guess is that they probably spent more time studying it than anyone outside of specialists in the field. And yet with all that, and despite all that, they claim it never happened. And when you think about it, probably it's been said before, probably no, well maybe not, I don't know, but uh, close to no human events has been as documented as well as the Holocaust. What they're in essence saying is that, I, I use this from the group so I'll just pull back that in anyway, think of it this way, the millions of Allied soldiers, Russian, British, US, France, etc., who served in the European theater during World War II, and either liberated the camps, saw evidence of it, came upon the DPs, and so on and so forth. All those millions of people. The millions of pages of archival documents in repositories and I don't know how many countries around the world. As well as the evidence by local people on the ground, all nationalities, survivors and witnesses, along with the testimony of hundreds of thousands, at the least of former, of Germans, of Austrians, etc., cetera, Nazis. Put all that together in the equivalent of, of you know, just think that. what space, what effort. And what they're saying is a group, a small group of Jews, manufactured all that, told everybody what to say, swore them all to silence, and except for these 150 dedicated intrepid individuals who discovered the truth, no one has come out and, and, and spilled the sword. It's actually, when you think about it, Holocaust denial is one of the most ridiculous things in, in the history of the world. It's probably, a, I don't even know what to compare it to. But that's essentially what they're saying. So they're saying that despite the effort that they made to study it, and despite those that incredible mass of evidence, of archival, of documentary, of, of, of film, human, etc. So, why are they saying that? Either they're totally delusional, which is, by the way, I think, going on with some of them at least, or there's an underlying rationale. And to my mind, the underlying rationale is a little bit of what I suggested earlier with Iran. The Holocaust has become a symbol for perhaps ultimate evil in our society it also laid the groundwork for many things the war crimes tribunals human rights on certain levels international organizations all these things that are definitive to some people and beyond that if you want to if your ultimate goal is to restore society to a world where people are judged not on who they are or what they've done or what they've accomplished but on how they were born, the color of their skin, their race, their religion, their gender. If you want to just use those typologies, well, you can't anymore because of the Holocaust. People will basically say, "Uh uh-uh, that path leads to Auschwitz. So if you want to get back to that, you have to deal with Auschwitz. And I think that's the fundamental issue. They want to restore that world, and they can't. They can't succeed, they don't even dream of succeeding unless they negate Auschwitz. And I think that's where they're coming from. So okay. I think it's, it's absolutely par- parcel. It's the same thing. And uh, that's, that's leaving aside all the empirical links between neo Nazis and Holocaust uh, denial and professional anti Semites and so on and so forth, of which, again, Mark Weber, we found linked to a German neo Nazi group. Uh, Willis Cardo has been a long time American financier of the neo Nazi movement and so on and so forth. I mean,
4: so, one follow up to that and then back to the floor. Um, you, you mentioned that a motivation, really the political motivation of Iran to support Holocaust denial is this de- delegitimization of Iran right. and human rights that's, of law. That's my hypothesis. Right. right. Do, you, do you have evidence for that or are you just. No, s-
2: No, it's purely subjective okay. in a sense. Um, I was looking at it and I was really I was trying to answer the question. Why would Ahmadinejad, who is... I mean, I, my understanding of i looking and reading about him is that he enjoys the spotlight, he enjoys listening. But, okay, so there's a little bit of that. But this is a policy, in other words, it's not just Ahmadinejad. One of the things I was trying to show was that it existed before him. It's wider than, than he is. If he was not the president of Iran, there's no guarantee the policy would change in that regard. So I, had, I was trying to think of a strategic reason why they would embrace this. Um, they don't need it to delegitimize Israel, which could be another reason. But Iran is, does not have borders with Israel. It doesn't. You know, it just it didn't seem that that was a necessary tool that they had to go into. So I, I, can't, I, I don't know. I was trying to find a reason, and, and that's what I came up with. It's hard to find evidence, either way, for that. It's hard to understand why they're so obsessed with it. Um, and if anyone has a Better idea, brilliant idea, or any other ideas? Um, I, I'd be interested in hearing it, um, but that's that's really you know the thought that came to me. Okay, um, okay so we have
0: a question in the front, and then one in the rear. And two more questions. At first, uh, because you have been talking so much about, this important. American and European right wing extremists. Um, what about, for example, Alain Benoit, who is published in the US? Because in Europe, he's well known in uh, this issue uh, as an extremist, as an anasimat, and, and, and anti democratic thinker, and so on. But what do you think? Why is a, a person like Benoit published in the US uh, for a publisher like Taylor's Press uh, for, for the cakes? First question. The second question. And you mentioned this very important game on the internet, shooting uh, Hispanic immigrants and so on, and with this little American flag, where the stars are replaced by one David star. And this reminds me to uh, some ten days ago, or two weeks ago, there was an um, event at Yale University, and um, the, the Yale Political Union was inviting Merzheimer, um, talking about his infamous book about the Israel <coughs> And uh, unfortunately, I had not the opportunity to, to speak out at this event, but um, I do not know if a lot of people in the US know the effect behind this book. Because uh, I suppose this book was written not in uh, 2005, as it was published first in the US, but it was published in 1942. And why so? Because in 1942 there was a book published in Nazi Germany from Johann von Leers, one of the most leading ideologists, and this book was called Kräfte hinter Roosevelt. It means the, those who run America or those who run Roosevelt. And why I'm mentioning this is because the cover of this book in 1942 was an American flag where all the stars were replaced by David Crosses. And the new edition of Roosevelt's book in Germany, The Israel Lobby, by a Campus published, has same color. It means the American flag
2: and all the stars being replaced by David crosses. Well, there's a lot of, I mean, it's a common typology. Um, if you go back von there, if you talk about, by the way, he was an example of a Nazi who ended up converting to Islam and, and living in Egypt um, after the war. He was a classic example of, you know, the reverse route. He was not the only one, um, but he was a, an educator, a propagandist who specialized in this stuff. Uh, Who Runs America is a a long-standing, William Pierce had a thing called Who Runs America, um, which listed, I forget how many people that were uh, supposedly, you know, the the media, etc. Some of them were Jewish. By the way, one of the fascinating things about these guys, in terms of their own research or intellectual capabilities sometimes, is that they make up their own reality. So you will see Who Runs America, Zionist Jews who control the media. Uh, Okay, William Paley used to be on it, the former head of CBS. Rupert Murdoch is on it. There's only one problem. Rupert Murdoch's not Jewish. But it doesn't matter. He's still You can tell them that over and over again, and Rupert Murdoch will still be on it. So they, they make up their own reality. Um, I can't. I really I stayed away from beersheimer Walt for, for a specific reason just because we could spend the whole, again, just you know, a whole other event on them. Um, I don't know if they intentionally took their stuff. I, I tend to think that. There are things that they took, David Duke loved the book, and claimed, again, claimed credit for some of it, and claimed some of the citations came from Duke. Um, they denied it. But I think it's it's that certain stuff of being in the air, being in the atmosphere, where, where you can't quite put your finger on where you get something, but somehow or other it comes to you that's in there. What I will say about the book that I found fascinating was Noam Chomsky, who you would imagine. Would be an extraordinarily strong support of the book. Wrote, if I can remember the exact phrase, maybe I'll just paraphrase it. Basically, I would like to be able to recommend this book, but I can't because it's such a piece of crap. It was just research so shoddily done that he could not recommend it, uh, and he put that in a, in a, you know public in the public uh, arena. So that kind of well, you can draw your own conclusions from that. Um, so anyway, so that, that's what I say about that. The first time I'm not familiar, I didn't catch the name that you were saying the first Benua? one. Benoit?
0: Which... Which name? Which Benoit? Alain Benoit? I was mentioning Alain Benoit. The France thinker, uh, who has been published at Helles
2: I'm not familiar with that specifically. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, so, no
4: I'll take a pass on that. Okay. So there was a question in the rear.
3: Yeah, You started your talk by saying that the religious connections um, for anti-Semitism were no longer legitimate; that could be drawn on because the church
2: had talked about. It. I, I, I want the mainstream, yes, with I said with an ex, with exceptions, and the exception, particularly in the Protestant world, is Israel and Zionism. Um, there's a lot of anti-Israel stuff going on in a lot of the Protestant world council churches and so on. Um, there's a lot of attempted delegitimization of Israel. Uh, theological delegitization of Israel that really is very close, in my perception, to the line of what would be anti-Semitism and what's not anti-Semitism. And again, that, that's a really, it, it, it's a major theme that needs to be explored more. Um, but I think it's it's highly problematic. The Catholic Church is nowhere near that level, although there are manifestations and and. Charles Tchaikovsky was here as, as a very... We, we served, I met him years ago, on uh, a Jewish-Polish Catholic dialogue group that was set up by the Archises in New York. Um, so I guess he would not be happy by referencing this. But there's a case in Poland. Radio Maria is virulently anti-Semitic. And the priest in charge of it, Bridget, was actually, even after the controversy erupted, somehow or other managed to get to San Godolfo uh, not this past summer, but summer before, but he was greeted by the Pope, and the answer was, of course, that he was innocent, they didn't know, you know, he just happened to be there, but you don't just happen to be in front of a Pope. Um, there's an immense amount of bureaucracy and security that you have to go through. Um, so I don't know if that was a signal, they reprimanded reprimanded at the same time, um, and the Polish churches, certain wings of it definitely are not very happy with Radio Maria and so on, um, but I didn't want but basically what I was trying to say is the mainstream, in other words, the Vatican II sentiment has officially outlawed this stuff. Um, and I'm not even going to the Mel Gibson way either. but uh, you know, so, so basically that's what I meant is, the, is that the, the kind of broad mainstream has moved beyond
3: that. Well, I'm, I'm glad you made the clarification. What I was wondering about as well was the religious links with the right wing because it's not Catholic. Right. Um, and it's not even necessarily mainstream Protestant. And also the religious underpinnings of some of the Islamist anti-Semitic um, sentiment and how all that fits together in some kind of a package. <laughs>
2: I'm not sure it fits together because I, I still haven't seen much, I have to admit, of, of you know, extreme Protestant fundamentalism and extreme Islamist fundamentalism mm-hmm. sort of coming together. Generally, they're, they're kind of at pulls apart and, 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 you know... I don't think we should be really shocked by that. Um, I think what you do have, though, are again extremely literalist and fundamentalist readings of religious texts. Um, you do not have them mediated through historical experience of working with the other, um, which I think is, is and, and I think it's vital, and I think it's one of the things that's left out of conversations about religion. Um, is that very often we talk about, you know, having voices from the mainstream speak up and take control of religion and so on, and sources that deal with that. Most of the sources, I think, that deal with that come out of the experience of religions having to share space. They're basically practical. They develop a working relationship on how to deal with it, and and, I'll mean, i be very honest, clearly I'm I'm much more familiar with Jewish tradition than I am with either of the other two, Um, and I've spent more time working with um, Christians than I have with with Muslims, so I'm not claiming total expertise on this, Um, but my experience has been that that's the way these things have developed, and I don't think we pay enough attention to it, nor do I think that we sometimes look at others perceptively, Actually, I'll give you a concrete example. I think the Jewish community, in many cases, has been slow in recognizing that not all Muslims are Arabs, and not all Muslims are directly involved with the Middle East. And it took us, my own organization, last year, created a website called smusa.org, which is a very, on some level, simple website, but it basically brought basic information about Jews and Judaism to the Muslim world. But it did it in not just English, but in Urdu and Farsi and Arabic and Indonesian. Mm-hmm. And we've developed relationships. We've, we've done a conference with the patronage of uh, the former president of Indonesia. Um, and not that, that everything is you know, wonderful and soft, but it means that there's this whole other world that I think Southeast Asia, where Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. Southeast Asia is where more Muslims live than any place else. Um, and they've been left out of the conversation. The conversation had been centered on the Middle East. The conversation had been centered on you know, radical, on, on, on Zionism, on all these hot button issues that did not involve these people directly on a certain level. And I'm aware that they're being brought into the conversation. And it doesn't mean we see eye to eye. There, there It doesn't mean there's not radicalization in that world. Um, but it's still a whole different world that had just been neglected. Um, so I think that's one of the things that we need to do better is, is just be more perceptive in our in our outlook. So we have uh,
4: two questions the front um, I, I I'm still thinking back and forth about your um, hypothesis um, why Iran uh, um, why the Holocaust denial is so strong, and you link this with the UN and human rights? Because. Um, Well, I found it quite intriguing, the thought, because that would mean uh, sort of, um, this would go back to the roots, so to speak, the UN and human rights debates. And I I just kept wondering whether you could say a little bit more about it, because to me, the link was more, um, for me, the link was more clear in terms of Israel and um, what the Holocaust stands for um, in, in in a global view, maybe, for the creation of Israel. Israel as, as a safe place, etc. And I was just wondering, because the UN and, and the whole human rights debate they go on, in recent years they go to very different places and the UN um, could be seen, I don't know, more in favor of Iran than Israel and all those things. So, yeah, I think
2: that I looked at it in the sense that the mechanisms in some ways that were directly threatening Iran or Ahmadinejad personally on a certain levels, were coming out of the UN more than Israel, more directly. The arms control inspectors were from the UN. The whole issue of the nuclear program and so on, from the UN. The Security Council from the UN. If he's ever brought to trial as a war criminal, or a criminal Crimes against humanity. You know, I'm sort of cynical that that will ever happen. I'm not sure. You know, whatever. But again, but that's from the international bodies. Israel is not directly an actor in those things. In other words, it it has an impact. It has a say. And if you want to say that Israel is driving the United States in that conspiracy perspective, fine, say that. But the immediate issue is from that body. Or that type of body, um, and if you're also trying to sway world opinion, the countries, the European countries, or the Non-Aligned countries, or whatever, um, they can easily be against Israel, but that doesn't have an impact necessarily on what they're saying about Iranian nuclear capability, or so on. Um, this strikes in an indirect fashion, or this strikes a different target, and. And I don't know. As I said, it's a pure hypothesis. But it just seemed to me that the investment of time and energy was beyond what they needed. Israel was already stigmatized. Israel was already demonized in the Iranian discourse. Political, social, etc. Um, they didn't need a conference dealing with the Holocaust. Why these specific subjects? Why? They could have done it on anti-Zionism. They had a smaller Thing about cartoons in wake of the um, car- the, 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 the um, controversy about the cartoons about Muhammad, they had a smaller international cartoon contest, but they didn't put as much effort into it. They didn't bring so many people in. They didn't they didn't you know broadcast it. Just didn't seemed it seemed disproportionate. So that, that's what I'm trying to get at. And as I said, it's it, it's a hypothesis. I freely admit that. It's it's hard to find evidence. I I could be way off on it. Um, it could be somebody never even thought about it. Just decided to do it that way. But I was really trying to give a rational a rationale for, in a sense, what I saw as an irrational act um, and a strategic or political or diplomatic rationale in that vein. Um, so it's the best I can do. And if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. I'm, I'm I really don't know.
1: No, actually, my question is very similar to the
4: next question. I was thinking that this whole Iranian denial also stems from you know, anti zionist ideology, basically, and sort of a strategic rationale. A, I don't know, but I it stems from a certain ideology, a worldview, right. a belief system they agree that the Holocaust. I it agree with happen. that.
2: There is a form, and, and, and I probably should have said, and, and you know that maybe just to, I plead that it's so self-evident to me, and, and, but I should have put it out there as well. Was that, of course, it delegitimizes Israel as well. That goes both ways. Yeah, but also uh, what when you say,
4: is that do we necessarily have to look for a political, international, strategic question now, or is this just you know not just, but is this now part of the worldview? That is if you are anti Zionist, you deny the Holocaust. Not necessarily, but in most cases. And well, it's certainly in their case, uh, that sort of comes from that place. because For them, it is the logical continuation of their anti Zionism, anti Israeli ideologies to deny the Holocaust, which they think Israel uses to justify the, the reason <laughs> So that their that inner logic maybe works. Well, the reason. I'm not sure. That's just going to jump in for a second. I'm not sure that the the um, anti-Zionism translates to denial of the Holocaust. Well, I was said, exactly. The reason the reason that I'm looking specifically at Iran so
2: deeply is because none of the other Arab or Muslim countries that are even at states of war, Syria, for example, does not have such a committed policy on Holocaust denial. Saudi Arabia, you know, any of these countries, you think about it, they, they—they're not so wrapped up in it. Only Iran has, which made me think that there's something specific and special why they're doing it. Well, the, the society,
4: you know, there's a lot
2: of things. There. But but they are unique in that vein, if you think about. It.
4: They're
3: also unique in the area. Um, I don't know either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I,
2: I wonder if maybe it goes the other way. The anti-Zionism comes out of the. Holocaust denial, uh, because it seemed to me that that Iran wasn't that vociferously anti-Zionist before. I mean, they they talked the game, but they didn't really make a big deal out of it. It seems like uh, it's a way for them to curry favor in the Arab and Muslim world besides a Holocaust denial. So it's sort of like an added benefit. I mean, it's a possibility. I I think that it's really. You know, I think we just have a lot of um, conjecture about this because they're not really transparent in terms of their internal, you know, workings, um, and they haven't really allowed for deep analysis of their stuff. In other words, they're, they're you know, we don't have access to. The equivalent of the National Security Council deliberations or policy deliberations and things like that. Um, so I think it, it I'm not going to dismiss anything basically. I think it's very it's an interesting question and I think it just needs to be left open to
4: a certain degree. So I think that's all. Thank you for the Thank questions you. and
2: for staying. <laughs>